Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Beetlejuice, Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 94, Beetlejuice. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a very warm welcome to you all. I hope you're all continuing to stay safe and well. And a big welcome back if you're a returning listener. And if you're a brand new listener, then welcome to Verbal Diorama. I'm happy that you're here. It's always so wonderful to hear of new people listening. And before we get into Beetlejuice, obviously I am working on lots of different things at the moment because obviously this is episode 94. So we're really, really close to episode 100. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, episode 100 is going to be a reasonably big episode. Probably the biggest one that I've ever done. And it's going to have a little bit of build up to it as well. So I am working on that at the moment. I also am working on a sister podcast called Rotoscoperama. I'm working on exclusive episodes for patrons as well. And and yeah, to be honest, uh, (laughs) kind of wondering where I'm going to find the time to do all these things. But I will find the time because I always do find the time. And uh, before we go on to Beetlejuice, I just want to say that the response that I got for the episode on Children of Men was really, really phenomenal. Children of Men had the best first day downloads since Captain America the Winter Soldier. I mean, I don't get huge downloads on this podcast, uh, not compared to some of the really huge podcasts that are out there. But yeah, the fact that Children of Men was so wonderfully received. It's quite a way off Black Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. They are the current reigning champions. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the reigning champion. Black Panther not far off. But the comments on Children of Men were great and it really is a movie that resonates with so many. And obviously if you haven't seen Children of Men, it really deserves your time. So please go and check out that movie and check out the episode too. Anyway, Let's find out who you need to call when you're scared sheetless. I said sheet. Uh, (laughs) All will make sense in a bit. Here's the trailer for Beetlejuice. 
From the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Adam and Barbara are... Ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah! You don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. He's guaranteed to put some life Attention, King in your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Adam and Barbara are a normal couple who happen to be dead. They have given their precious time to decorate their house and make it their own. But unfortunately, another family is moving in, and not quietly. Adam and Barbara try to scare them out, but end up becoming the main attraction. They call upon Beetlejuice to help, but Beetlejuice has more in mind than just helping. Let's quickly go through the cast. So we have Alec Baldwin as Adam Maitland, Gina Davis as Barbara Maitland, Jeffrey Jones as Charles Dietz, Catherine O'Hara as Delia Dietz, Winona Ryder as Lydia Dietz, Sylvia Sidney as Juno, Glenn Shaddix as Otho, Robert Goulet as Maxie Dean, Dick Cavett as Bernard, Annie McEnroe as Jane Butterfield, and of course, Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. The screenplay was by Michael McDowell and Warren Scarran, the story by Michael McDowell and Larry Wilson, and it was directed by Tim Burton. This story starts with Pee Wee Herman. He's a character not incredibly well known here in the UK, but most importantly for its first time director, the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure was a financial success. That director was Tim Burton, who'd previously worked as an animator, storyboard artist, graphic designer, art director and concept artist at Walt Disney Productions Animation Division. His concept art never made it into the finished films, but he contributed to The Fox and the Hound, Tron and the Black Cauldron. And during his time at Disney in 1982, he made his first short film, Vincent, a six minute stop motion film about a young boy who fantasizes he is his hero, Vincent Price. Price himself would provide narration for this short film. His next short, this time live action, would be 1984's Frankenweenie, about a young boy who tries to revive his dead dog. Disney then fired Burton because Frankenweenie was deemed to be too dark and unsuitable for the family-friendly audience Disney liked to court. It was Frankenweenie that encouraged Paul Rubens to choose Burton to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure, being sold on Burton's unique filming style. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was made for a tiny $7 million budget and went on to make $40.9 million in the US alone. 
From the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton basically had Hollywood in the palm of his hands to choose his sophomoric directorial attempt. But he had his heart set on a big screen Batman and he started working on a script with Sam Hamm. Warner Brothers were fine to pay for this script, but less happy to greenlight a big budget Batman movie. At the time, obviously superhero movies kind of weren't really a thing unless they were Superman. In the meantime, Burton was sent scripts for his approval for this sophomore effort and felt that none of them were original or imaginative enough for him. Meanwhile, horror novelist Michael McDowell was trying to break out into the movie business and spurred on by horror blockbusters like Ghostbusters and The Exorcist, he wanted to write a screenplay for a supernatural horror movie of his own. He enlisted his partner, Lawrence Senelik, to come up with ideas and together they came up with the concept of good ghosts rather than the malevolent spirits of something like Poltergeist or indeed The Exorcist, which led to the good ghosts being haunted by the awful living and to get rid of the living, you needed a bio-exorcist. The original story of Beetlejuice, named after the 10th brightest star in the constellation of Orion, was decidedly more sinister. Beetlejuice himself was a homicidal demon intent on killing the Dietzes. The Maitlands died a gruesome, horrific death. Beetlejuice aimed to have sex with Lydia and once released, Beetlejuice couldn't be controlled or contained. It was definitely more horror horror than comedy horror. It was a connection with Pecos Productions co-founder Larry Wilson, an experienced story analyst who'd previously worked for Paramount. Larry Wilson felt he'd surrendered ownership of some of his best ideas and together that garnered a professional partnership to tame Beetlejuice into something more palatable for the screen. And let's not forget, only four years after this movie, we had Candyman, a serious horror movie where you also spoke the character's name three times to bring them up, except it was decidedly more gruesome and also you had to use a mirror. A little bit different to Beetlejuice, but a similar kind of principle. Gone were the gruesome details and in came a slightly more horny title character, more of a mischievous character than anything truly terrifying. When McDowell and Wilson finished their script, Wilson gave it to an executive he knew at Universal. The executive read the draft and, well, let's just say, used some very colourful language to describe excrement. This executive has never been named but probably sees now what a huge mistake they made. Wilson was undeterred and he had a contact at the Geffen Film Company called Marjorie Lewis. Lewis was a development executive at Geffen and knew Wilson through his script classes at UCLA. And she read Beetlejuice and she was completely blown away by it. She passed it to Geffen president Eric Eisner, imploring him to buy it. That same week, Geffen purchased the rights to Beetlejuice. But at the same time, Burton was wrapping production on Pee-wee's Big Adventure for Warner Brothers, which was Geffen's parent company. In the most serendipitous of happenstances, the script for Beetlejuice landed with Tim Burton just when he needed something unique, something that suited him as a director. Tim Burton was smitten, believing that he could have written this himself. And looking at the work that Tim Burton went on to do, I think we could safely say he probably could have written this himself. Once Burton had signed on, the script started to be pulled apart by the studio. At the time, it was renamed House Ghosts. Burton then jokingly suggested Scared Sheetless, which the studio did actually think on. Tim Burton's agent, Mike Simpson, also represented screenwriter Warren Scarron, who'd just come off rewriting Top Gun. Scarron was fascinated with themes of mortality, and one of his favourite books was The Denial of Death a Pulitzer Prize-winning scientific thesis on human response to death by Ernest Becker. 
Scarron consulted with McDowell during the rewriting process, injecting more humour into the script and changing certain elements, including adding the bureaucracy of the afterlife. The original draft had two Dietz daughters, Lydia and Cathy. Scarron amalgamated these into one daughter. Lydia would also become more important within the narrative rather than just be a bystander. Instead of Beetlejuice wanting to have sex with Lydia, it was changed to marriage because that's better. Uh, <laughs> Scarron also created a happier ending than the original draft where Lydia would die in a fire to become a ghost and live with the Maitlands. But most importantly though for the title character, he made Beetlejuice himself less of a murderer and more of a crazed trickster. And undoubtedly this change in the character has been a key factor in the ongoing reputation of this movie. And despite Michael Keaton being so perfect for the role, Tim Burton originally sought out former Rat Packer Sammy Davis Jr. Tim Burton attended a meeting at Geffen with Marjorie Lewis and David Geffen to pitch the idea of Sammy Davis Jr., which led to a huge rant by Geffen, who refused the idea, basically stating Davis wouldn't be right for the part and instead suggesting Michael Keaton, who had hit big with roles like Mr. Mom in 1983, but whose career had slightly faltered since. Keaton turned down the Beetlejuice role, but David Geffen refused to take no for an answer. And famously, Michael Keaton only spends 14 and a half minutes on screen in this movie. Uh, he also ad-libbed 90% of his lines, which is quite impressive considering how brilliant he actually is in this movie. It's quite astonishing. I struggle to ad-lib just generally in life. <laughs> <laughs> this guy can do it in character for a whole movie. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. And while I personally have been binging Schitt's Creek of late, and I'm low-key obsessed with Catherine O'Hara's Moira Rose, O'Hara didn't actually make the Beetlejuice audition. She had several calls with David Geffen, saying to meet with Tim Burton. She had no idea who this Tim Burton guy was, but she decided to fly from Toronto to LA and drove to Burbank to meet with him. She ended up getting lost. Obviously, these were the days before Satnav. She ended up finding a phone booth. These were the days before mobile phones. And she called her agent to say she was lost. She managed to find Tim Burton's place two hours later, only to find a note on the door from Burton saying he couldn't wait for her anymore. O'Hara then flew back to Toronto thinking, oh, well, never mind. I'm clearly not going to get that part. But she got the part of Delia Dietz a few weeks later. This proved especially fortuitous for Catherine O'Hara, who met production designer Bo Welsh on the set of Beetlejuice and they've been married almost 30 years now, and they have two sons. So that is a lovely story to come out of this particular movie. Winona Ryder only had one acting credit to her name at this point, but impressed Tim Burton enough to get the role of Lydia over Alyssa Milano. Never let it be said that teenage girls have it easy, and especially teenage girls who star in blockbuster movies about death, because, because of Lydia's gothic appearance and having the ability to converse with the dead, Winona Ryder was bullied relentlessly after the movie came out. She does, however, look back on the movie very fondly. And I'm going to talk more about sequels at the end of this episode. But Winona Ryder was very keen to return to the role of Lydia Dietz. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Verbal Diorama actual favourite Gina Davis. Gina Davis had debuted in Tootsie, but it was 1986's The Fly which gave her her first big box office hit. And she followed that immediately with Beetlejuice. And, you know, when you look at the cast of this movie, it really is a cast of who's who of acting. There are just so many huge names in this movie. 
At the time, obviously, they weren't particularly huge names, but they are now. Beetlejuice started filming in March 1987 on sound stages in Los Angeles and also on location at the village of East Corinth, Vermont, which stood in for quaint small town Winter River, Connecticut. The production made changes to the town. The bridge over the river became a covered bridge for the production, mainly because Tim Burton wanted to invoke a traditional small town American feel. And the facade of the Maitland's house was specially built on the hill on which it sat. This is at the end of Jules Lane, East Corinth. The house doesn't exist there anymore. It was demolished after filming was completed. The maintenance hardware store was a general store on the main road, which is sadly now closed down. All of the interior shots were filmed at Culver Studios in Culver City, California, and were designed by aforementioned production designer Bo Welsh, who ramped up both the design of the traditional Maitlands versus the contemporary Dietzes. I mean, is Delia's art contemporary? I'm not quite sure how else to describe it without being rude, because I'm not really an art person. Um, it's interesting art, isn't it? It's, it's macabre art. I don't know if it would be called contemporary, but anyway, doesn't matter. So Tim Burton encouraged improvisation on set. And as I said, Keaton took that and ran with it. He called it rave acting. And he claimed he could rage for 12 to 14 hours a day before going home exhausted and feeling cathartic. It's cute, Delia. <laughs> Daylight come and me won't go home. Also, are you doing Work this? Work all night and a drink a rum. Daylight come and me won't go home. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me won't go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. is one where purgatory has a reception and haunting has a handbook. The handbook for the recently deceased gives new dead people all they need to know about death, except it's written like stereo instructions. The Maitlands refused to acknowledge their death because they were literally about to live. Adam and Barbara were content with their lives and their identities, despite being sold that they could sell up, leave the town and make more money. 
their identities were connected to that house, to that location. And by working on their house over their vacation, they were giving their house their identities too. So once they died and their house is sold to a couple so vastly different to them, who want to undermine their identity and remove them completely from the house. This is obviously where they hide in the attic. This is the only place they have sanctuary and the only place they can visit the town, in inverted commas, in the form of Adam's model town, because if they try to leave their actual house, they basically encounter this hostile sandworm. They are prisoners in this home. And it's the model town that's infected by Beetlejuice. And it's there they have to go to dig him up so he can invade their world and bio-exercise the Dietzes. Lydia remains the focal point between the living and the dead. We even find out that she is suicidal. It's another reason why she'd be happy to make an agreement with Beetlejuice to save the Maitlands, who she considers family at that point. I think most of the time we forget Beetlejuice is a movie with serious undertones and that just because it's humorous it doesn't take away from the empathy and sympathy we feel towards the Maitlands and to Lydia especially. While there is a happy ending where Lydia gets the parents she wants whilst also having the parents that she has, there's no resurrection of the Maitlands. This is their life after death uh, and death needs to be finite. Otherwise if you could cheat death it would make everything that we'd seen so far have little purpose. There are certain cheats in the movie though. Juno has control over elements of the living world. We see she creates Dante's Inferno room to distract Beetlejuice because he is that sort of pervy guy who just wants to see nude women. But mainly the thing that I love most about Beetlejuice, and there's a lot that I love about Beetlejuice, is that it's a fascinating exploration into identity after death and that the only thing tying them to the living is this house. Otho even knows more about the dead than he actually realises as it appears that everyone working in the afterlife did take their own life in some way or another. The receptionist had slit wrists, the messenger looked like he hanged himself, Juno appears to have slit her own neck, Beetlejuice himself was Juno's assistant so we can gather he must have also taken his own life but as the dead appear as how they died it's unknown. And just to add, the only reason the Maitlands don't constantly appear wet after they drowned is just due to the fact that Burton didn't want the actors uncomfortable with the constant wetness. The film was going to explain Beetlejuice hanged himself by saying he slowly choked to death after trying to hang himself while drunk, which is such a Beetlejuice thing to do, isn't it? Every effort was made in the set design and clothing to make the Maitlands feel like an everyday small town couple with pastels, florals and muted colours. The Dietzes, on the other hand, they are a brash New York City couple. They'd be boldly coloured, abstract, lots of straight lines, lots of avant-garde. The only exception, really, is Lydia, who starts the movie wearing all black. She has black hair, even black veils prophesizing her future encounter with the dead. And as Lydia actually becomes more of herself, she actually starts to enjoy life. She starts going to school, she starts wearing a school uniform, her hair, it's still black, but it's not as styled in such a way. It's not as sharp, her fringe is quite sharp before, but she feels more like a happy teenage girl at the end of the movie. And that's something that's actually really nice to see. It's not suggesting that Lydia needs to change who she is, if that's who she is, but we can see that Lydia is desperately unhappy. She's writing suicide notes. She tells the Maitlands she wants to be dead so she can be with them. It's really genuinely sad what Lydia is going through. And she has a father and a stepmother who don't seem to understand her and don't seem to be able to communicate with her. And 
And it is a really desperate situation. And in many ways, the Maitlands actually do save Lydia's life in more ways than one. But I want to talk about the makeup because the makeup artist, so one of the makeup artists was V. Neal. She was fresh from working on The Lost Boys and she came onto Beetlejuice not knowing who Tim Burton was or indeed how anything in Beetlejuice might look. So Burton famously sketches all his own concept art and so for the look of Beetlejuice she took a Polaroid of the sketches in order to work on Michael Keaton's makeup but the sketches didn't look very appealing for the title character of a movie. So she and Burton went back and forth on ideas before Neil asked him to let her take the colour palette of the movie and create her own makeup look for Beetlejuice based on that palette. So she used a pale yellow, almost white, for his face. The wig that they were using for Beetlejuice had been stripped of colour so many times that it was looking dishevelled. But this was the ideal look, actually. Keaton asked for his face to be disguised in some way, so they actually took some fake lips and moulded them to the side of his nose to make his nose look a little bit crooked. V. Neal added mossy greens to the face to make it look like he'd literally crawled out of the ground. Tim Burton saw the effect and said, that's Beetlejuice. And so from that point on, that was Beetlejuice. It's worth noting as well, the budget was so low that Bob Short, who was also in the makeup department, was the only person making props and makeup for the movie. There was only one person. The movie's low budget meant the effects had to be done as cheaply as possible. The total cost of the effects in Beetlejuice is literally only one million dollars. That sounds like a lot to you and me, but for a movie like this, it's nothing. So the production tried to do as much in camera as possible to make it as cheap as possible. Tim Burton wanted the effects to look like a B-movie. His trademark stop-motion animation was used for things like the sandworm, the snake movement and the sculptures. That was all done in post-production, but mostly everything else was an in-camera shot. When Barbara is holding Adam's head in her hand by his hair, Alec Baldwin was kneeling behind a black show card cut out around his chin. With cheap effects and one guy making props, things often broke on set. Beetlejuice's carousel hat took four days to shoot because things kept falling off or breaking. The Beetlejuice snake, which is fondly called Beetle Snake, apparently, so that was an animatronic snake head, but this was actually created before Michael Keaton was cast and so bore little resemblance to him. A stop-motion snake was created to look more like Beetlejuice, so audience knew Beetlejuice was a snake, but I think it's pretty obvious Beetlejuice is the snake. They ended up making the snake up to have the same colours as Beetlejuice. So I think it's very obvious. There's nothing else that the snake could be. It is a particularly scary effect. I have this aversion in movies to things with teeth. And I don't mean like normal human teeth, because that would be weird. I mean like really sharp teeth. Things with really sharp fangs. I don't like looking at them. And it's, I know it's a really weird thing to be scared of, but... When I was younger, I would always look away from the snake because it, it just had these rows of sharp fangs. And I've never liked looking at stuff like that. It's one of the reasons why, and this is going to be ridiculous, and you're going to be listening to this and laughing at me, but it's one of the reasons why I really struggle to watch Finding Nemo because of Bruce the shark when he smiles. He's got too many teeth. And I know that sounds really weird now I've said it, but anyway <laughs> talking of scary faces beetlejuice's scary face which is revealed to adam and barbara off screen was actually made uh, elaborate makeup was going to be used for the effect but ultimately it was never used and to be honest 
Sometimes implied scare is always more effective than seen scare because we see that Adam and Barbara are frightened of this face, so clearly it is a petrifying face. Let's move on. Let's go to the obligatory Keanu reference uh, where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Just for fun, how am I going to link Keanu to Beetlejuice? Hmm. I mean, there's really only one way, and that is through Winona Ryder because... They've starred in four movies together. They were in the wonderfully underrated Keanu performance in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I probably will cover on this podcast because I think it's a beautiful, gorgeous, stunning movie. And obviously it's got Keanu Reeves in it, which always helps. They've been in A Scanner Darkly, which again is also going to be coming to this podcast. The Private Lives of Pippa Lee and Destination Wedding. There is a rumour, and I believe it was started because on the set of Bram Stoker's Dracula, a priest married the characters that Keanu and Winona Ryder were playing. And so there was a thing like in the press a couple of years ago about the fact that they were still legally married. But I don't think that's the case. I really don't. (laughs) I really don't think that they're legally married. Maybe it's because I don't want them to be. But I kind of feel like if I was going to let Keanu be with anyone, I would probably let him be with Winona because I really do love her and it would be between Winona and Sandra Bullock because I love Sandra Bullock just as much as Winona Ryder so if Keanu can't be with me then I would accept him with Winona Ryder or Sandra Bullock and before you say anything I know that he's got a girlfriend and I know that she's probably a very lovely lady but yeah I kind of don't really acknowledge that (laughs) I really hope he never listens to this podcast how embarrassed would I be anyway Moving on, moving swiftly on. So the music of Beetlejuice, obviously this is one of many, many collaborations between Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Beetlejuice is very well known for its Danny Elfman score, but it's mainly known for its songs, for its two songs by King of Calypso, Harry Belafonte. Uh, Deo, which you might have heard at some point in this episode, which is Deo, parentheses, the Banana Boat song, and Jump in the Line, parentheses, Shake Sonora. So these are mined by the characters in the movie, and they are synonymous with this film. There is literally, as soon as you hear this music, you know it's Beetlejuice. Originally, David Geffen wanted When a Man Loves a Woman, but the rights were too expensive for that particular track, and Belafonte's work was cheaper and easier to license, So they decided to use Calypso music and it just works. You would not think that Calypso music would work in a horror comedy, but it really does. So Beetlejuice was released on the 30th of March, 1988 in the US. Here in the UK, we had to wait till the 19th of August, 1988. But like I said, like I've said on previous episodes, often we did have to wait a ridiculous amount of time to get movies. Not so much nowadays, but definitely back in the 80s and 90s we did. So I mentioned the low effects budget, uh, and that really helped keep Beetlejuice's overall costs low. So Beetlejuice was made for an estimated $15 million. It made over half of that back in its opening weekend alone in the US, and it went on to gross $74.2 million worldwide, becoming the 10th highest grossing film of 1988. Not bad for a quirky little horror comedy with B-movie effects. Most critically, post the release of Beetlejuice, the shape of superhero cinema changed when Warner Brothers finally greenlit Tim Burton's Batman with Michael Keaton as the caped crusader. 
He wasn't the only Beetlejuice alumni to be involved in Batman either. Warren Scarron was brought on board to rework the script and received a co-writing credit. Batman would go on to make $411 million worldwide. Sadly, Warren Scarron would pass away in December 1990 from bone cancer, but before he died, he would finish a script for a Beetlejuice sequel. Unfortunately, that would never come to pass. Warren Scarron's script, entitled Beetlejuice in Love, which centred on a love triangle between Beetlejuice, an opera singer and her dead fiancé, was shelved after he became ill, and then, unfortunately, he passed away. But I'm going to talk more about sequels in a bit, because this is not the only time we will be talking about Beetlejuice sequels. So critically, critics were mostly positive, especially about Michael Keaton's apparent rise from nowhere as a maniacal creep. It was suitable enough for a family audience whilst also embracing Tim Burton's macabre talents. And at the 61st Academy Awards, Beetlejuice was nominated for and won Best Makeup, which came as a shock to makeup artists Steve Laporte, V. Neal and Robert Short, who didn't expect to win at all. The BAFTAs also nominated Beetlejuice for Best Visual Effects and Best Makeup. It didn't win either of those, but this is an Oscar-winning movie. And it feels so great to say that someone out there has seen and given Beetlejuice the accolades that it clearly deserves for makeup. So let's talk about sequels. Uh, so with Beetlejuice being a huge success, sequel talk became inevitable. And in 1990, Tim Burton hired Jonathan Gems to write Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. It was the story of the Dietz family moving to Hawaii and building a resort on an ancient Hawaiian spirit or kahuna. The kahuna becomes the antagonist for the movie and the Dietzes enlist the help of Beetlejuice to contain the kahuna by winning a surf competition. And no, I am not making any of this up. At the time, Burton and Keaton were making Batman Returns and although Keaton and Ryder had both agreed to return, it was on the proviso that Burton came back to direct. Several rewrites, several rewrites later, the script was still going nowhere. And in 1997, Jonathan Gems stated that the Geffen Company owned the project and it was likely never going to be made. Basically citing Winona Ryder's age and that Lydia would probably have to be recast because Ryder was in her late 20s and there's no chance that Lydia would still be living with her father and stepmother. Seth Graham Smith was hired by Warner Brothers in 2011 to write and produce a new Beetlejuice sequel, again with the support of Tim Burton and Michael Keaton. And in 2013, Winona Ryder hinted at the sequel happening, but confirmed she would only be involved if both Burton and Keaton were. In 2015, Graham Smith confirmed the script was written and filming would begin at the end of 2015 with Keaton and Ryder both confirmed. Needless to say, clearly, because we are six years down the line, this did not happen. While the script was being rewritten in 2017, in 2019, Warner Brothers confirmed that the Beetlejuice sequel had finally been scrapped. There would be no return from the dead for the Beetlejuice sequel. Beetlejuice did, however, have a successful animated series lasting four seasons. It has several video games and a stage musical, which premiered in Washington, D.C. in late 2018, with a Broadway premiere in 2020. Despite the highest ever box office takings for the theatre, it was reviewed poorly and ended prematurely due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And a documentary called Documentary for the Recently Deceased is due out at some point. The internet seems to think it might be coming out later this year. It was supposed to come out last year, but it never did. And this is basically a documentary celebrating Beetlejuice 
and going into the making of Beetlejuice. There are a couple of really interesting trailers for it on YouTube. So if you are interested, pop over to YouTube and check them out. Right, let's go over to social media. Let's find out what do people think of Beetlejuice? And we're going to start with, as always, the patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with, as always, Andy from Geek Salad. And he says... Are Beetlejuice, the film that casts the Tim Burton aesthetic in the dye. This movie is one of my all-time favourite movies of the 80s. There are so many iconic scenes in this film, including the Deo dinner scene. Michael Keaton is an absolute joy to watch in his madcap role. And while they have more screen time than the titular character, the supporting cast of Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, Catherine O'Hara, Winona Ryder and Glenn Shaddix are all complete delights. And for Ryder and Shaddix, it set the tone of the characters they would play for decades to come. And if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you will surely know who Geek Salad are. They are the premier podcast for basically all things geek. They talk about everything and anything. They've recently released an episode on Disney moments that make you cry. And let me tell you, I... I'm well known for my crying. I think I lasted maybe 20 seconds from the start of that episode until when I was in tears. So that is how emotional that particular episode is. But, you know, they cover everything. Games, music, movies, comics. I mean, you name it. If it's geek, they cover it. So make sure you check out Geek Salad. I will, as always, put a link in the show notes. And we have a few late patron comments, so we will start with Mike. Uh, Mike is also from the Geek Salad podcast, and he says, Such a fun movie, with far less Beetlejuice in it than everyone remembers. Only about 20 minutes. Great performances by the whole cast, though particularly a young Winona Ryder. Far smarter than most people give it credit for, too. Look at how the office workers died. And I just plugged Geek Salad, um, so... I'm not going to plug it again. Um, obviously, you should listen to Geek Salad. We also have the Midnight Myth podcast, and they say... Pure Burton weirdness with a stellar cast and legendary performance from Michael Keaton. It manages to get the New England gothic feel spot on while also feeling entirely original, hysterically funny, and surprisingly sincere. Shake Sonora. Uh, wonderful, the Midnight Myth, that's Laurel, Derek and Sweet Baby Arthur are all about mythology, philosophy and history and how those topics shape our popular culture and our favourite stories. Um, it's a fabulous podcast, um, make sure that you go and listen to them, they are incredible, obviously as always link in the show notes for them. And finally for our patron comments we have Mark from 100 Things We Learned From Film podcast and he says, this was my introduction to not only Tim Burton, but also Michael Keaton. In spite of him only being in the film for 17 minutes, it made me a lifelong fan of his. Yes, even in Mr. Mom. As I said, Mark and his co-host John, they host 100 Things We Learned From Film, uh, where they aim to find 100 amazing facts from each movie that they watch. Please make sure you give them a listen too. Link for them is also in the show notes. So we will move over to Twitter. We will start with movie reviews in 20 cues. And Sam says, One of Stacey's faves. I've only seen it in whole this year. Thoroughly enjoyable. I've only seen it in whole this year. I'm not quite sure that's a sentence. I've only seen it in whole this year. In whole? In full? Do you mean in full, Sam? <laughs> 
know. Uh, but I don't think in whole works in a sentence. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know. Does it work? Does that make sense? I'm really struggling to think. My brain is not working. Please let me know if that is a sentence actually makes sense because my brain is telling me it doesn't and that it should be in full. Anyway, that was Sam. <laughs> uh, we have the I Understand That Reference podcast that Cap Understands says... Keaton steals the film and makes you understand why he was the original choice to play Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean, Burton's best film by a country mile. And we have at all underscore MFC who says, Much love for an iconic Keaton performance and some incredible ghost makeup work, but I especially love Catherine O'Hara in this. She is a fount of barely contained rage at being relocated to a normal Rockwell painting from New York, and I adore every scene she's in. We have at shocked applaud who said... Jen remembers not being allowed to watch this during the satanic panic era, which made her want to watch it even more, obviously. It's PG, Mom. Plus, that Saturday morning cartoon, it had a really unique style. We have at Shoot the Flick, who says, Such a fun movie. I was so shocked that my wife had never seen it, so we had to do it for our podcast. I've wanted a sequel for this forever, even if it's Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, which may actually work. Mm, I'm not sure it will, but... I'm kind of happy to not have a Beetlejuice sequel. Uh, and finally, we have Benson at underscore son of Ben underscore who said, Danny Elfman's best music score mixed with Keaton's best role ever. Wonderful cast lineup and an all round funny and in some ways clever movie. We don't have any on Instagram or Facebook this time round. But as always, a massive thanks to everyone who took the time to give their comments on Beetlejuice. Freelance bioexorcist Beetlejuice would pave the way for Tim Burton's signature style for years to come. It embraced death in a comedic way, but it never undersold what it meant to be dead and how that affects the dead and how much red tape there are, how much red tape there is in the afterlife. Beetlejuice may have started life as a serious, scary horror movie, but we ended up with something so charming in its macabre gothic detail that it feels like it would never be made today. Beetlejuice himself is inappropriate, rude, self-obsessed and perverse, a wholly original creature who exists in a time capsule in many ways. Sometimes you don't need a sequel, and I really feel like Beetlejuice works because there's only one. It's full of brilliant practical effects that still hold up in the sense that it's a fantasy comedy horror, and it's never meant to go for abstract realism. Lydia always spoke to me as a character for the very fact it felt refreshing to have a teenage character who was strange and unusual, a bit like me. Um, while Tim Burton peaked in the 80s and 90s, he has gone decidedly more mainstream nowadays, much to the chagrin of me and I think many other people who would love to see Tim Burton be this Tim Burton again. His Beetlejuice is bonkers, bizarre and brilliant. He really is the ghost with the most. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Beetlejuice. And if you did love this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by doing one of the following things. So you could tell your friends or family about this podcast. You could leave a rating or review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Ideally, five stars would be amazing. Or you could just do something as simple as liking a post on social media or retweeting if you're on Twitter because something like that just helps with visibility. And if you like this episode on Beetlejuice, 
you might also like one of the following episodes. And so obviously I wanted to look at things that were a bit strange and unusual. Um, but I'm going to start with episode 41, Tremors, mainly because it has a big sandworm. It's a little bit of a creature feature, but it's actually a lot of fun. There's a lot of humour in Tremors. And yeah, if you like sandworms, then, <laughs> then check out Tremors. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention episode 45, Little Shop of Horrors, because it is a very similar kind of style. Obviously, it's a musical, but there's so much amazing puppet work in Little Shop of Horrors. And I pretty much guarantee that if you do like Beetlejuice, you will love Little Shop of Horrors. I will recommend that movie to anyone. It is the best musical ever made by far. Episode 63, Coraline. So Coraline is also kind of a macabre, twisted fairy tale. The sort of thing that actually Tim Burton probably is more known for. It's a stop motion movie, very similar to A Nightmare Before Christmas, which Tim Burton obviously produced. So yeah, if, if you do like Beetlejuice, then you will probably also like Coraline as well. And finally, a little bit of a curveball, but episode 66, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight because it has a very similar character. And I'm not gonna spoil the movie, but there is a Beetlejuice-esque character who's very charismatic, not quite as wacky as Beetlejuice, but incredibly charismatic, wanting to basically rule the world. And, uh, and yeah, there's basically only a handful of people who can stop him. So Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, it is completely different to anything else that I've ever featured, but it is a little bit like Beetlejuice. So if you like Beetlejuice, you might like that movie as well. As always, give me feedback. Let me know if you think I recommended the right ones. So the next episode. Um, so I've basically done some quite big 80s movies. I've obviously done Raiders of the Lost Ark, the last episode, and Beetlejuice. And then I thought, do you know what? I'm going to go for a complete curveball. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to a character that I very recently featured on the podcast, but in a different form. So for the second anniversary, I released an episode on Disney's Robin Hood, which was obviously an animated version of the classic Robin Hood tale where Robin Hood is a fox. And there was this big thing about Robin Hood and foxes. And basically the episode did astonishingly well. Out of all of those Disney episodes, people adored Robin Hood more than anything. And I mentioned in that episode that I love Robin Hood men in tights. And so I thought, well, you know, we're coming up to episode 100. It's the perfect time to bring Mel Brooks to verbal diorama. I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy Robin Hood Men in Tights. And unlike other movie podcasts, I speak with an English accent. So it's the perfect choice for episode 95, I think. So make sure you join me next week for that one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can support the show on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. Tiers start at $2 a month and you get exclusive episodes, you get to know the schedule, you get episodes early for certain tiers as well. There is an exclusive episode from, on WandaVision coming soon. So if you would like to support the show, then that would be amazing. And as always, a massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Scott, Mark and Brendan. You guys make my millennium. I do have a merch store. It's teespring.com slash store slash verbal diorama if you're interested. 
Or if you just want to get in touch, you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go over to the website verbaldiorama.com. And you can pop over to Film Stories. I write articles. I'm actually in the middle of writing two articles for the website. One I'm incredibly excited about. It's my first ever review that I'm writing for a movie that's just come out recently. It is a wonderful movie. I'm so excited. I have written an article on the Mitchells versus the Machines. I adored that movie. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm so looking forward to re-watching it for the article. And obviously I write a column I've just submitted today actually, as well as I'm recording this. So make sure you check all of those things out. And just before I leave you, I'm taking part in a charity live stream on the 22nd of May, 2021. It's at 3 p.m. UK time. And it's all to raise money for live stream for the cure. And here is Nick to tell you a little bit more about it. My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the fifth annual Livestream for the Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the Livestream for the Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference. Finally, I give myself an A for this episode, so... Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sinora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. And when she dances, oh brother, she's a hurricane in all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line. Bye. Movie should know.